Tonight's reading will be from 2 Peter 3, 8 through 15. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in li- to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count for the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our brother, beloved brother Peter also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. This is the word of the Lord. About a generation ago, an, an author named uh, Stephen Covey wrote a book called the, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the second habit is the one that uh, I'm referring to tonight and plagiarizing from. Uh, begin with the end in mind. And one of the things that uh, Covey says is uh, if you want to have an effective life, you, you need to have a sense of where you're going, of what your end is, what your goal is, where you want to end up, and then you need to prioritize uh, your daily decisions in such a way that you move towards that end. That's pretty good advice. Well, I think the same thing is true when it comes to uh, the spiritual life. And the second week of Advent is essentially saying that as Christians, we should begin with the end in mind, that we should order our lives, make our choices, uh, determine our priorities, based on this reality that the Lord Jesus Christ will come again. Now, that belief was very important to the early Christians. They would pray, Maranatha, Lord, come. Uh, Paul told them to celebrate the Eucharist until he comes. Um, Early on in the church's history, they added that little liturgical piece that we say at at the table, uh, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Uh, This is a very important piece of belief in the early church. And tonight's passage describes the end. It describes uh, this goal to which all history is going that we need to keep in mind as uh, we order our days. And according to this passage, there are three great events that are going to happen when the Lord returns. The first one is that Peter says that the cosmos will experience some kind of radical transformation. And he uses apocalyptic language to uh, describe what one day is going to happen to the whole cosmos. He says, the heavens will pass away with a roar. Uh, The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The heavens will be set on fire. Uh, The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So he looks into the future and he looks at this great day of the Lord when Christ will come back. And one of the things that he sees is that 
that the whole cosmos will undergo this massive uh, transformation. And, and I know he wasn't writing physics here, and he wasn't trying to write a physics textbook, but it is interesting that modern physics proposes that that may well be the way the world ends. Um, uh, a Bucknell physics professor wrote this. He says, as the sun ages, it will puff up in size and become more luminous, slowly raising the temperatures on Earth. Eventually, our oceans will boil away and our atmosphere will become thick with water vapor and carbon dioxide, creating a runaway greenhouse effect like that on the planet Venus. By then, temperatures on our dry, barren planet will be above 1,000 degrees, and it's hard to see how we might survive in that environment. So Merry Christmas. <laughs> I only share that to say that sometimes when, when we read these texts, it's just so easy to go, oh, how can I believe that? That's just so hard to, hard to believe that the world would ever end that way. And at least some physicists think that that's exactly the way the world will end. Now, the second thing that's going to happen uh, when Christ comes is that he will judge the world. Peter says that on that great day, great day the Lord will, uh, will judge the works that are done on the earth, that they'll be exposed. Now let's think about this uh, for a little bit. Uh, the Nicene Creed summarizes the biblical teaching. It says, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. And there are dozens of texts on this. It's not a minor theme, uh, Acts 17.30, God commands all men everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world. 2 Timothy 4.1, Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. And Christians will take part in the judgment day. Paul's writing to Christians when he says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, that cannot be a judgment uh, regarding salvation because Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. And Paul has said there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when when we go before the judgment seat of the Lord, it is not uh, to determine whether or not we will be saved. That has already been determined the moment we put our faith in Christ. But there is a sense in which our life will be evaluated on the judgment day uh, by the judge who loves us, by the judge who died for us, by the judge who we worshipped tonight. And, and the passage that I think of that most clearly articulates that is in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul's talking about, uh, to the Corinthians, he says, make sure you, you build your life on the foundation of Christ." And then he says, and I want you to understand that the kind of house you build with your life uh, will be evaluated one day. And on the judgment day, there'll, there'll be a, a, an evaluation, a cleansing, a purging uh, that you as a Christian will experience. He says, whatever we build on that foundation will be tested by fire on the day of judgment. Then everyone will find out if we've used gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. We will be rewarded if our building is left standing. 
So that's the, the second aspect of the Lord's return. The, the first is that there's a radical transformation of the cosmos. The second is that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. And that there'll be a sense in which we go before our loving Savior and our life is evaluated. And I, the Bible doesn't fully unravel that mystery of how that all plays out. I, I, I would think there would be this combination of great relief and joy and love at being in the presence of Jesus. Because whenever the scriptures talk about the second coming, it's filled with hope and expectation and longing. But I, I suspect, too, that tears may be a part of that. As, as I realize uh, the ways in which I did not obey the Lord, the, uh, the opportunities I had to serve him that uh, I did not partake of. Now, the third event that, that happens when Jesus comes again is the transition to the new heavens and the new earth. Peter says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the Greek word he uses for dwell there means permanent dwelling. And, and so this is a very important part of the cluster of events that take place at the second coming. The cosmos is radically transformed. There is a judgment of the living and the dead. And then out of this, uh, the, this uh, broken, judged world emerges a new heavens and a new earth upon which the righteousness, that's you, dwells forever. And that's our hope. That's the hope of the second coming. Now, Peter is writing to Jewish readers who are very familiar with the Old Testament, and so he's, he quotes from Isaiah 65 a prophecy about the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, a devout Jew reading his letter would have remembered that whole passage, and so I want to I'll bring it up now uh, and just read it to you. This was the passage that Peter was drawing upon when he says this is what Jesus is doing when Jesus comes. God says, I'm creating new heavens and a new earth. Everything in the past will be forgotten. Celebrate and be glad forever. I'm creating a Jerusalem full of happy people. I will celebrate with Jerusalem and all of its people there will be no more crying or sorrow in that city. No child will die in infancy. Everyone will live to a ripe old age. Anyone 100 years old will be considered young. And to die younger than that will be considered a curse. My people will live in the houses they build. They will enjoy grapes from their own vineyards. No one will take away their homes or vineyards. My chosen people will live to be as old as trees. And they will enjoy what they've earned. Their work won't be wasted, and their children won't die of dreadful diseases. I will bless their children and their grandchildren. I will answer their prayers before they finish praying. Wolves and lambs will graze together. Lions and oxen will feed on straw. Snakes will eat only dirt. <laughs> they won't bite or harm anyone on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. So that's the vision that lies behind our passage here. Uh, when, when the biblical writers envision heaven, envision eternity, envision 
the, the next life, they don't think of angels on clouds with harps. They think of a city enjoying shalom. They think of a city in, in this passage that is filled with joy and uh, health care and housing and economic viability and justice and spiritual vitality and, and unity. That's what Jesus creates ultimately when he comes back. Now, uh, for what it's worth, uh, modern physics proposes a, a similar scenario based on um, their theories. I read this this afternoon. Scientists studying the properties of the so-called God particle say they may be able to determine exactly how the universe will end. A concept known as vacuum instability could result billions of years from now in a new universe opening up in the present one as a tiny bubble and eventually replacing it. (laughs) So I don't know anything about physics, but I thought that's kind of interesting because that's exactly what the Bible says will happen. So, three events that will happen when Christ returns. The cosmos will experience a radical transformation. Christ will judge. And a new heaven and a new earth will emerge. Now, what does it mean to begin with the end in mind? In other words, if we as Christians believe this to be true, how should it affect how we order our lives? Well, uh, Peter gives three instructions or commands. And the first thing he says, in verse 12, he says that if we believe this, we should hasten the coming of the day of God. Now that's a very interesting phrase when you think about it. Because the Bible talks about God being sovereign over time, about how God measures time differently than we do, about how nobody knows the day of the Lord. And and Jesus himself says, I don't know when he's coming back when I'm coming back. And yet here, uh, Peter says, I want you to speed up the coming of the day of God. Speed up the return of Christ. Now, what could that mean? Uh, Not sure we can ever fully know, but Jesus does, in places like the Lord's Prayer, teach us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So there is a way in which we get to participate in the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. So, if we believe that this is where all of history is going, that what God is is doing in the world is on this kingdom-building project of restoring shalom to the planet, then it just makes sense that you and I would look for shalom gaps and then step in with our gifts by the power of the Spirit and cooperate with God in trying to Build shalom here. Now, I heard a couple good examples of this this week. Daryl Arnold called me. We were talking, and after a while, we talked about Ferguson. And and uh, I said, you know, what's that like in your church? How are your people feeling? What? How are you going to handle this on Sunday? And he said he was praying about it and and, and trying to think through. And then he said, I know one thing we're going to do Sunday, and this would have been. A couple hours ago, they meet at 2. He said, uh, and this is Daryl Honor, the pastor of Overcoming Believers Church in East Knoxville, mostly African American. He said, I've asked the KPD Bluegrass Band to help lead us in worship. So this afternoon, 
a bunch of white cops with banjos <laughs> led the OBC worship service. And I thought, that is great. That is great. Now, I have to call them. Maybe it wasn't great. But I'm the idea, <laughs> I think the idea is a, is a, is a beautiful one. Um, Mary Baldridge came by my office this week, and, and she shared another uh, great idea. Uh, she's been thinking a lot about the power of the table, the, the power of just what happens when we eat together. And she mentioned that, that Scott Branson preached a powerful sermon on this in October. And if you didn't hear it, you should listen to it. And because Mary begins with the end in mind, Mary cares about racial reconciliation. So here's her idea. She said, uh, why don't we do this? Why don't, why don't we create a unique kind of dinner club? And it'll work like this. Uh, we'll get some folks from our church, anybody who wants to, and some folks from OBC, and then they will commit to have dinner together twice in 2015. Once in your house, once in their house. No agenda. Just getting together and breaking bread. So I thought, that's an amazing idea. So we called Daryl. Daryl's driving somewhere to preach. And he's, he's I love that idea. So we're going to get together. And you'll probably hear more about this in, uh, in January. But I thought, that's a beautiful picture of someone beginning with the end in mind. Just trying to take a step towards the reconciliation that we see in Isaiah 65. Um, I read an article someone referred to me today that I thought was another great example of of living this way. This is from the L.A. Times uh, in September 16th, last year. And the title is, Young Players on the Watts Bears are Part of a Larger Team Effort. The Watts Bears might be the only football team in the Pop Warner League run by men with guns and badges. The squad of seven, eight, and nine-year-olds is drawn from housing projects in Watts and coached by officers from the L.A. Police Department. For the cops, it's part of community policing aimed at building neighborhood bonds and reducing gang-related crime. For the boys, it's a chance to hit somebody with police officers cheering them on. (laughs) But there wasn't much hitting in Saturday's game at Cathedral High. The Bears didn't score. They lost by 32 points. They missed tackles, dropped balls, drew penalty calls, and seemed to tune out coaches yelling from the sidelines, stay in the ball, watch the quarterback. Still, every time the whistle blew, the coaches swallowed their frustration and praised a player for something. Beautiful run to the boy on the verge of tears because he'd fumbled the ball. Good hustle to the kid who needed his inhaler after trying to stop a touchdown. High fives to the jubilant player who actually did tackle someone. The team is 1-3 right now. With luck, they might finish at 500. But that's not what matters most to Sanchez and fellow coaches Grant Goosby, Zaren Thompson, and Cesar Rivera, who all patrol Watts housing projects when they're not teaching youngsters a three-point stance. This is a building year for us, Sanchez told me on Saturday as his team lined up on the bus trip back to Watts. And what they're trying to build is not a gridiron dynasty, but a relationship that will strengthen the entire community. The football team is a product of a partnership between the police department and the city's housing authority, which oversees housing projects that used to account for much of the crime and violence in Watts. Officers who patrol the projects now do more than make arrests. They coach football and track, take children on field trips to dance classes, science centers, horseback riding lessons. They visit schools, talk with teachers, and monitor players' grades and homework. It's a test of relationship policing as a way to make life safer and break through generations of hostility between LAPD officers and residents of the projects. 
program started two years ago. Since then, there's been just one shooting death in Watts' largest housing projects, compared with 43 homicides in the previous six years. So another example, uh, I don't know if they were motivated by Christ's love or not, but another example of an action that somebody took that reflects the end, reflects what God's trying to do on the planet. Now, second instruction Peter gives, he says that, that we're to live in a way that would not embarrass us if Jesus showed up. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for this, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. And Jesus picks up this theme uh, a lot in the Gospels. He tells lots of stories about people that uh, should be ready when he comes, and their light, their lamps should be ready, and yet uh, the lamp isn't filled, and they don't have it when he comes, and they're caught off guard. And, and the idea seems to be that as believers, we need to live every day, we need to live every night, uh, in such a way that if the Lord came back at that moment, if he came back at 10 o'clock last night, if he came back at 2 this morning, if he came back at 8 tomorrow morning, that whatever you're thinking or doing, he would say, well done. And he uses this word, uh, without blemish. It's from the, the tabernacle. The, the temple system is about preparing a sacrifice. And he, he's saying, like the author of Hebrews does, that our lives are like a holy uh, a sacrifice, an offering to him. And so we need to live every day so that if he were to come back at that moment, he'd be pleased with us. Then last of all, he says that if we believe these things about the end, we should seek to be at peace. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him at peace. Now, peace is an enormous biblical word. The Hebrew word for it is shalom, which we talk so much about. It's this idea of wholeness, completion, restoration. It's used 91 times in the New Testament. We will hear about the gospel of peace, the shoes of peace, the peace of God. Christ is our peace. One dictionary says, "Peace, God's peace is the tranquil state of a soul, assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God, and content with its earthly lot." And that's interesting. It kind of is tucked in there, and you you might miss it. I missed it the first few times I read it. But he's saying. One of the things should, that should happen if, if you believe that Christ is returning, that he is Lord of history, that one day he will make all things right, that the end of, of, of life is not the end of life, but actually the beginning of the next life. If you believe all of that, that should result in a measure of peace in your heart. But notice too that he says, be diligent to be found at peace. Peace is something that we can lose, isn't it? Peace is something that is elusive, that can slip away. And so he says, be diligent to be found at peace. And I think what that means is doing what you're doing tonight, stepping away from a crazy world, and, and, and particularly social media. I don't know about you, 
I, I've just been watching too much Twitter about Ferguson. Just uh, been reading too much about it. And it's, it's stealing my peace. And uh, I haven't known what to do about it. One small thing I did is I called a friend of mine in another place who is a black brother, and I just said, how are you doing with this? And he told me, and I just listened, and it was hard to hear. Just, just hard to hear. And the, the mo- then I feel like I've got to read the next article, and the next one, and the next one, and watch the next little video clip. And before you know it, I've lost my peace. I don't know what might be robbing your peace tonight, it might be something to think about tomorrow morning or at dinner or with, with your people. What are the things in your life right now that are robbing your peace? Now, I'd encourage you to just do this. When you get a chance to pull out a journal, pull out a piece of paper, and as you begin the second week of Advent, just tell the Lord what's stealing your peace. What's making you anxious tonight? And then just read a text like this one again. Remind yourself that Christ is returning, that he's the Lord of history, and that you're his. And God will give you peace. Let's pray.